This is the Victory Away from the Venue podcast, showing a different side of the athletes you know and love, or maybe don't know and love, and how what happens far removed from the bright lights and the TV cameras can provide a different way to look at accomplishment. And now here are your hosts, two friends dating back to college and sports junkies their entire lives, Matt Swinney and Zach Wells. How's it going, everybody? Welcome inside episode three of the Victory Away from the Venue podcast. I'm Zach Wells, alongside the great legend himself, Matt Swinney. Hey, Matthew Dean, what's going on? How you doing, brother? I'm doing awesome. Awesome today because we have the perfect guest for what we want our podcast to be. Three-time World Series champion, Jeremy Affelt will join us. He won it all with the San Francisco Giants as a left-handed relief pitcher in 2010, 2012, and 2014, which is really unheard of to yeah. win three World Series at all as a player much less three with the same team as one of those lefty setup men out of their pen. And he's really, Matt, what we want this podcast to be about. He's the perfect guest for us. A guy who has really realized that this is a lot more, this platform that he has, these resources that he was able to earn over the course of his career are about a lot more than, oh, I struck out the side or I walked the bases loaded. I, I gave up a grand slam or I, I retired you know, every 12 in a row. And he's really tackled human trafficking. He's written a book. He had a blog as a player. And you're going to really be interested in, in the difference that he has made for people away from the playing field. So we can't wait for Jeremy Affelt today. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, plus a member of all those awesome even year uh, Giants teams, which was so bizarre, right? <laughs> and one time the uh, what, really like wild, wild card, like 84 win team or 86 win team or something like that. Yeah. You know, you, and I'm really interested to hear why they were so good because this was not the most talented team that right. won the World Series, but it was the best team and it was the toughest team and it was the group of guys that played best together that won it all and they got hot. 2012, the Reds went there to San Francisco, won the first two games, then came back to Cincinnati. The champagne was on ice in game three. It was on ice in game four. It was on ice in game five. And they, for the first time all year, lost three home games in a row. Yeah, and it was Buster Posey that hit a grand slam off Matt Latos in Game Five, and it was it was one of those classic Cincinnati sports moments for all the wrong reasons. You heard the, you heard the, <laughs> the collective the groan. You heard that? It, it was almost like Howie Kendrick off the fair pole. That sound you could hear Buster's yeah. crack of the thanks. bat and just the silence in the ballpark. Thanks for that uh, little dig there, Zach. I thought appreciate I, that. Thought I, thought I'd get there, <laughs> Matt. I want to start today with the inconsistencies in coronavirus. I am, and I want to just set the table here, uh, I'm immunocompromised. I had a kidney transplant two and a half years ago. I am all about safety. I'm all about health. I'm all about doctors. I'm all about medical science. But I'm also all about living, too, if it's safe for us to do that. So here in Kentucky, I live in Cincinnati, the suburbs of Cincinnati. Cincinnati is a river town along the Ohio River. I live in northern Kentucky. And recently, the governor came out and said, because of unsafe conditions in the schools, we need to be home remotely learning through at least September 28th. And that's fine. The concern I have is that bars and restaurants, the indoor seating is being expanded to 50% capacity where it was, I believe, 25% before. So we, we can't go to school because it's dangerous, but we can sit inside restaurants because that's okay. And, and I, I bring that up because I'm just asking for it to be consistent. And I see a lot of inconsistencies there. And I see a lot of inconsistencies as it pertains to college football. And good for Justin Fields, the quarterback at Ohio State, who might very well go down already as the best quarterback to ever play for the Buckeyes. And that's saying something. 
Good for him. Good for these parent coalitions at Ohio State, Michigan, Penn State, Iowa that are stepping up to the Big Ten. Look, there is no reason that our kids aren't safe going through the protocols in these college football programs. These college football programs have sports medicine empires that would rival anything in the private sector. You can create possibly a bubble if all the kids buy in, all the coaches buy in. And we saw what happened at Oklahoma, right? The kids went home and they come back and there's nine positive tests. So I truly believe that they can do it. The NBA has shown they can do it in a bubble format. College is going to be more complicated. I understand that. But if you can create a bubble within individual universities, I think they can make this work. Tell me why I'm wrong. I'm not sure you are wrong. Um, football is a different beast than basketball. So, if, uh, okay, so, so let's start here. So if we're going to compare it to the NBA, let, let's talk about the, the, the comparison and, contract, and, and contrast, right? So let's just talk about football versus basketball for a moment. So upsides for football, it's outside. That's good. Um, NBA is inside. That's bad. Um, NBA has a huge win on its side in that you're talking about very small teams in comparison to football, right? So just the sheer number of people that have to be involved in a college football team, especially if they're traveling, is very different than it is for basketball. But that's Maybe all right. Three to four times the number of people. Right, yeah. I mean, and, and in college football, you know, you're talking even bigger, right? In the NFL, whatever, it's 60 guys or whatever. But in, um, in college, I mean, there's probably 100 kids that at least are on the sidelines, at least at home games, maybe not that always travel. Um, not everybody is suited up. You know, you have all of these sort of, they're, they're going to have to get around the, you know, boosters who want to stand on the sidelines and all that. Like none of that's going to be able to happen, right? So to me, I hear you. And I think, um, I think the fact that the idea that you could create a bubble within your team, I think is incredibly powerful. I know that it's very easy for us to say college students, you really think college students are going to not go party with their friends or whatever. And my argument to that is, is look, of course that's a risk, but I also, I've been in plenty of team locker rooms, both as a player and kind of after the fact you have two Zach. And here's the thing teams, the word team as it relates to college football or really anywhere else, once you get to that level, you may have some conflicting personalities and there may be some guys on your team or women, sorry, I keep using guys, but on your team that um, you may not love as a human being, but you do love them as a teammate. And in football in particular, they talk a lot about playing for the guy next to you. And to me, I do think with the right leadership, with great coaching staffs, with um, administrators who are on board, right? So of the university itself, with athletic directors who are on board, with captains of the team who are well-chosen. I do think that 100 kids, 60 kids, 80 kids, whatever it is, will absolutely get on board being with the program. And now the trick to me is, is, you know, could Ohio State, let's keep using Ohio State as the example because the Big Ten has canceled football. Um, so they're easy to sort of pick on because they're not going to be playing this fall, right? So to me, if if you went to Ohio State and you went to Ryan Day and said, this is the kind of leadership we're going to have to have, I think he would buy in and he knows his players well enough to know if they will buy in. And 
they're not going to put their players at risk in any way whatsoever from a health perspective if they don't think that they've got a very, very good chance to get through an entire season. So that's, that's kind of one thing to me. And then the second then becomes, okay, well, do I trust the opposing team to do the same thing, <laughs> right? So, like, if you're let, – let's go to the Big 12. So, the Big 12 has decided that, at least for now, that they're going to play football. So, if I'm Texas and I have agreed to all of that, okay, so has, has OU also agreed to all of that within their own team confines? And I think that's where the trick kind of comes in. And so, there has to be some level of trust there. And I think that's where, that's where conference leadership comes in. That's where coaching staff leadership comes in. We know there's a coaching fraternity. We know that even though the Texas OU relationship, you know, from an on-field perspective isn't great, I guarantee you that Tom Herman has an absolute line directly to Lincoln Riley, and they can talk through this stuff together, and they will be absolutely honest with each other. And they do not want to put those kids in any kind of position. So, I think it can be done. I think well, we're college seeing... football's better when Texas and Oklahoma are playing. Right. right. College football's better when you have rivalries, when you have passion, when you have, when it's safe to play yeah. and, and everybody's involved. And I understand you're not going to have stadiums full of 110,000 people this year, 115, whatever the case may be, but college football's better yeah. when you have those rivalries in place. Yeah. So, so, so talking about the inconsistencies though. So the NCAA is the perfect example here. And, and I'm sorry, like you and I have talked about this off, off recording and to me, the NCAA, Mark Emmert and his cronies have completely botched this thing, right? Like, to me, you know, you had this opportunity to create some level of consensus. Instead, he basically said, no, conferences, you figure out how to deal with it. And now you've got two major conferences who aren't playing any fall sports. And you've got three major conferences that currently are playing major fall sports, including football. And so what, what does that look like? So I know that the big 10 and the PAC 12 have said that they're going to play in the spring, but really like, I, I was an advocate for playing in the spring until, until I heard chance marquee players. Yeah. There's no chance marquee players are going to be playing football when the draft is the following month. Right. No and, right. And so, you know, I, I was sort of the, the advocate for spring and then, and then, and then I did a little bit more research and realized why that's so difficult. Right. So there's no, there's no way you're right. Marquee players are not going to play in the spring, have the draft and then have to have their bodies ready again. What four months after a season ends to go play their first NFL season, three months after their, you know, they're probably in OTAs, you know, three months after a season would end. Right. And, and it just doesn't seem like reality. So, so, so now what, now you got three conferences <laughs> that are going to play three major conferences. And I, I don't know where we are on the, on the power five. I mean, on the uh, group of five, I think like a couple of them maybe have opted out at this point, but there's still like maybe three left that haven't made decisions. So now you just got a giant cluster and mess to deal with. And the NCAA has been no help. And so to me, like, what's the NCAA good for? We've already been asking this question. So is this the beginning of the end of the NCAA? Could be. It could be for sure. I, I, I go back to what happened here in Cincinnati on Friday night. So the Reds and Pirates were here at Great American Ballpark in Cincinnati playing a really spirited series. Pirates took game one. The Reds took game two. They were slated for four from Thursday through Sunday. Reds player test positive Friday night. The news comes down. Okay. Major League Baseball steps in, says game is canceled on Saturday. 
the final game of the series, game four, will be postponed on Sunday. And here's, here's the interesting thing, and here's where we get into inconsistencies. And where I think Major League Baseball, if able to do so, could do a lot better job communicating what's going on. Both teams have an off day, and that off day is Monday, August 17th. Why are they not playing a doubleheader today? If you're using Saturday and Sunday to go through all the testing, to go through all of the due diligence you need to do to make sure it is safe for the Reds and Pirates to play baseball, then why are you not playing on Monday a doubleheader before the Reds leave town and the Pirates head to wherever they're going next? I don't understand it. And Pirates manager Derek Shelton, he's in his first year on the bench there, said, hey, look, these decisions, he told a beat reporter, hey, look, these decisions are made far above my pay grade, and I really don't know what to tell you. So translating that, I, I don't want to play armchair psychologist. It was, hey, look, we were quarantined in, in Cincinnati waiting to play, and Major League Baseball pretty much shut it down, and we don't really have a good explanation why, so go ask them. Yeah, and so all we know as the public, right, is that one person from the Cincinnati Reds tested positive. And we that's going to happen. And, and we don't even know if that's a player or not, right? Like it's we, a player. Okay, we do know that. Okay. So, but, but that's going to happen. Right. There's it's, a difference between a test, a positive test, and an outbreak. This is, to the best of our knowledge, not the Cardinals and not the Marlins. Okay. Yep. We use Saturday for revamped testing. We use Sunday to go through all the protocols. According to the reports, not a single Reds player tested positive besides the infected player. Not a single Pirates player or staff member had a positive sample come back. Let, let's play. Yeah. So, and I assume that they tested everyone on Saturday, probably tested everyone on Sunday. I can only assume that the, that major league baseball is getting these results back quickly. Right. And so to me, I, I hear you. Like if, if, if everyone else has tested negative after 48 hours, then let's get on the field and play. I, I agree. I think, I think the, the inconsistency and the problem for me becomes this, um, if we are going to shut down the world over one positive test, then we're never going to get anywhere. And I understand the risks associated with that. I understand that Willie McGee, you know, coaching for the Cardinals decided to opt out of the rest of the season. He's in his, um, I think early sixties. He has, um, he has high blood pressure. He has like seven people living in his home, family members. So I get it. But at some point, if you are going to – look, baseball didn't cancel the season, right? We decided that we're going to go play. If and baseball, nobody disparaged Willie McGee. Absolutely. No, God, God right. bless him. Yeah. My family comes first. My health comes first. I don't want to put anyone at right. risk. I right. feel like my cardiovascular well-being is best suited – being at home. And, and yep. Willie, that's great. Yep. But, and, there, but there are other people who are testing negative in Cincinnati that want to play baseball. And you can make the case, Matt, that they are more at risk driving to the stadium. Yeah, they are and, more at risk taking a bus ride from downtown to the ballpark than playing when everyone has tested negative. Yeah. And, and, and that, you're quarantining the infected player. Right. And that's what I think confuses me, maybe, is so Major League Baseball as I understand it, right, they have the three-person, like, taxi squad, right? So that group, essentially, as I understand, travels with the team but is not actually on the roster, 
right? And so the idea of that group is that if someone goes down or tests positive, that person is pulled out, sent to an alternate site or whatever, goes to the hotel and quarantines or whatever the case may be. They do all the quick testing. And then if everyone is good, then they just bring in somebody from the taxi squad to replace whoever tested positive, right? Like that was my understanding about how this season was supposed to work. And then on top of that, they essentially have like the 60 man roster, right? So they're, every team is usually working out at like one of the minor league facilities, right? And, and so you got another 30 person team ish, something like that, who is staying in shape, ready to roll, ready to hop on a charter flight or drive to the stadium when called upon, right? Like that's, how this whole season was supposed to work. And I said, when the Marlins outbreak started to happen, I understand if you need a couple of days or three days or four days or some reasonable period of time to get your ducks in a row. But once the ducks are in a row, what are all those guys down at the minor league facility doing? I thought we were here to play baseball. That's why we had 60 players. Right. That was the whole point. And then the Cardinals, like, so we're recording this on uh, Monday the 17th and the Cardinals literally just played like their sixth game of the season this weekend. So, you know, after everyone else has played 20 and that's fine. I understand that stuff has happened and, you know, maybe in certain cases there, there have been like the entire coaching staff has been positive. And so there's not even coaches and managers to kind of get, but I don't think that's what's happened. Right. So to me, I just don't understand like what I still don't get what baseball's plan really was like it doesn't seem like there was a plan at all like I know there was like a hundred page document that was you know two and a half inches thick that they had to read through and that had all the protocols and that had if then scenarios in it but it seems like they have just been totally fly by the seat of their pants when an outbreak has actually occurred or a positive test has happened and by the way give baseball a lot of credit right like the fact that we've had these two outbreaks with Marlins and Cardinals and then, you know, one Reds, you know, one here, one there. The reality is, is it hasn't shut the whole league down. And we have been able to move forward. And I think that there's a lot of credit to be given there. But, and frankly, with them traveling around and no bubble and everything else, like this thing looked like a um, like a dumpster fire from the beginning. And yet we have somehow figured out how to do this. But the only way we figured out how to do this is because the players have bought it. And, and and they didn't at the beginning, right? It didn't seem like it. So I know you and I talked off air about this. Of Let's talk about the Indians for a second, right? So uh, for anyone who doesn't know the story, right? So Zach Plesak, pitcher for the Indians, goes out to – they're in Chicago uh, playing the Cubs or White Sox. Sox. Playing the White Sox. Playing the White Sox. They He's having are, a very good year, by the way. Yeah, yeah. very well. Yeah, yeah. Plesak's pitching well. And he decides that he's going to go out with like eight of his buddies in Chicago. So he's breaking Major League Baseball protocol, and he does it, breaks curfew, team finds out about it, sends a cart. My understanding is they send a car for him at the restaurant where they were, and they literally take him back to the team hotel. Next morning or later that night, they're about to get on their flight. Indians are to go back to Cleveland, and comes out that this has happened. Uh, Plesak is sent you know, either to an alternate site or somewhere else, or has to drive himself back to Cleveland, whatever the story is. Meantime, Mike Clevenger gets on the flight, the charter flight back to Cleveland, and it comes out later that Clevenger was with Plezak and didn't fess up to it. And if I'm a teammate, that pisses me off almost more than you went to go do it, right? Like, 
that you let you you hung your buddy out to dry, you know, while you just stayed quiet, which totally sucks, right? If I'm Plesak, I'm beyond pissed about that, right? Like you literally left me holding the bag for both of us. So he gets on the plane. Now there have been no positive tests as far as we know for either Plesak or Clevenger or anyone that was in their group. So it may have been no harm, no foul. But what I appreciate is that the Indians ultimately sent both of those guys to an alternate site while, while Cleveland goes and plays baseball. And Terry Francona had some very pointed comments about, you know, them having to earn their trust back from their teammates. And that says something to me, right? That all of their teammates, and I'm thinking this is going, this is probably across the board. And that's why we're seeing so few positive tests. I think all of their teammates jumped in and basically said, screw this. Like we're all in this thing together. This is my paycheck, by the way you know, and I'm already putting myself at risk to do this. I'm staying away from my family. I'm doing all of these things in order to be able to play baseball. And you decided that you needed to go out and see some friends in Chicago. Really? Is that what I own it either? And really yeah. own it. And I think, I think if, if, if police, I could come out and been a lot more apologetic and accountable for what he did, I think he'd still be on the big club right now, but he came out, he posted this ridiculous Instagram video while he was driving who knows where about how the media is terrible is portraying him as a villain. And it's just, just blaming everybody else except himself. Cause really the only person to blame is, is him. But I think you look at the Indians culture and I agree with you uh, sending them out is the absolute 100% right call. And it, by the way, makes their pitching staff a lot worse. And this is not a real good offensive club and the pitching staff is the calling card of, of Terry Francona managed teams in Cleveland. And for them to do that, I think sends a message, but if you can have that kind of culture and this kind of ties everything together really well, if you can have that kind of culture of accountability in college football, if you have no positive tests in the NBA, I think we can make this work. I really do. And yeah. when you look at the revenue generated from football, we've talked about this on the podcast before the revenue generated from football is just, it's the golden goose of every athletic department in the country. And it always yeah. will be probably. Yeah. And to be able to still be able to fund the scholarships for both men's and women's sports that aren't football, I, I think is well worth the, the protocols. It's well worth the risk. And I think we should do it. Yeah. So let me ask you a question that goes into the sports side of this real quick. So, um, and we have not talked about this in advance. So I have no idea if you even have an answer to this. I don't know if I do. So putting me what, on the spot. So what happens? So uh, the NCAA came out and said that they do not have any jurisdiction over the college football playoff. Like, they just don't, right? Each bowl owns itself. The college football playoff is run by a completely separate organization. Um, so the NCAA can cancel fall sports championships all they want. They cannot cancel the college football playoff. They have no jurisdiction to do so. So here's the question. If you have, let's just say – that the three major conferences, so we're talking Big 12, SEC, ACC, and then let's just say three group of five conferences, and I'm sorry I don't have those in front or of me. The, we're the still American, playing. Yeah, Amer- Let, let's say that those six conferences technically exist in um, FBS, and the how in the world do you think, or if you, or if you were in charge of the college football playoff, how would you set it up for this one year knowing that it's just one year and I don't know in a, in a perfect world, like how would you view this? And then as a fan, do you view it as a legitimate championship? If the big 10 and PAC 12 aren't even involved, I'm going to go to what David Bell, the manager of the red says, if this is an asterisk next to our championship, 
I welcome it because it would be overcoming things that no one has ever overcome before to be able to win. Yeah. So if that's an asterisk, that's an asterisk that I welcome. I think that there's a lot of wisdom in that. I think it has the potential to be really exciting, man. If you can have a poll, and, and I've never in any other football season thought the team should be ranked before October. Mm-hmm. But if you can have voting like you normally do with the teams that are playing, pick you know five, six conferences, have the voting, and still technically put the best four teams in the college football playoff, the best four teams that have played, I think that's going to be phenomenal. So doesn't this, as you were talking, this lends itself in my mind to we're already playing short seasons, right? So we're already playing only a 10 game season in most cases. I think the SEC has said that they're playing 11, but most teams typically play 12 or 13, right? And then a championship game. I know the Big 12 has said that they're still planning on a Big 12 championship game. But if the lesser bowls don't exist, like let's just assume for a minute that the, that the, that the not playoff, that those bowls don't happen. Um, I don't know if that's actually the case, but let's just assume that they don't. Then to me, if you're already playing a shorter season, then you have the perfect opportunity to say, let's just for one season see what a 16-team playoff looks like. Right. I mean, these kids are, you know, and, and, and figure out how to make them neutral site or don't let's play some home games. Hey, if um, let's say if, uh, well, if you're playing a shorter te- schedule, you've got the time to do it. Yeah. And if Texas A&M goes on a run and uh, I don't know, who do you want to Oklahoma goes on a run, but A&M is the, you know, 12th seed in a college, in a, in a, in a championship. And what does that make? OU the three seed or something, then Home team at OU. Who wants to see AM at OU as a playoff game, you know, in late November, early December, right? I mean, to me, like, let's just get rid of the conference championship games and let's just go into a bigger playoff. And let's say, so if you got three conferences playing and three group of five, uh, so let's just say top three in each major conference and then top and then three from the power five. What is that? That's, oh, that's only 12. I, you can even have four more. So top four from each of those, right? And let's just make it a crazy, like everybody just beat up on. Now all of a sudden you may have a team like, I don't know, Texas Tech sneaks into the four hole in the Big 12 and they may be the 16 seed, but they got to go play at Clemson, you know, the one seed or something like that, like, or at LSU or something. I, I, I mean, I'm there for that. You want to watch that on really TV? Fun. Yeah. To paraphrase Albert Einstein, where there is chaos, there is great opportunity. Yeah, and think about the and think about the TV money, right? Especially with no fans and stands. Assuming that that's what we're playing, I mean, if I'm ESPN and I already own all of those playoff rights anyway, so you're telling me I can have more playoff games because I'm losing all of my other bowl games? Yeah, I'll pony up. Like I think I'm still getting my value here because let's be honest, like the you've got a bigger audience. Absolutely. And Texas and Texas Tech at Clemson in that example beats whatever the Bahamas Bowl was going to be. Right. I mean, and now also the other cool thing about that is in, in my little example there, if you have four group of five um, teams out there, I mean, the likelihood of one of those sneaking past round one actually goes up pretty dramatically. Right. So, you know, because if someone because someone like that is going to be like the eight seed or something like that, and they're going to play the five seed even on the road because road doesn't matter nearly as much anymore without without fans and stands. And all of a sudden, maybe a group of five actually has a chance 
to make a little bit of a run. To me, it feels a little bit more like college basketball at that point. I think the changes to our society from coronavirus are going to be prevalent throughout sports and non-sports. And I yep. think it opens the door to a lot of really intriguing possibilities. Yeah. Matt, what do you say we get to our guest? Let's talk to Jeremy. So Jeremy, three-time World Series champion, 2010, 2012, 2014 with the Giants. Welcome aboard, man, in the Victory Away from the Venue podcast, man. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. Got to start you off with a trivia question. So you're a big history guy. So September of 1985, Pete Rose passes Ty Cobb at Riverfront Stadium with hit number 4192. The pitcher was Eric Schau. Pete Rose was the batter. Who's the catcher putting the signs down that day? Yeah, I got no idea. Baseball history is not my strong suit. Uh, I wasn't even in the United States when that happened. I was in Guam, so I don't even know. Uh, Who was it against? The Pirates? It was was against the Padres. Padres. All right, Bruce Bochy. Bruce Bochy, your manager with the Giants, was putting the signs down that day. And you know Boch – you know, Boach is uh, a legend. He's going to the Hall of Fame one day. What was it about Bruce Bochy as a leader of men, as a tactical baseball man, as, a, as an old catcher that, that filled out the lineup card every day that was perfect for your teams in San Francisco? Uh, you, know, you know, what he did well um, was he kind of thought three steps ahead of everybody else. And he was a very strategic manager. And what people didn't know, he didn't just show up to the field and – like put together as a, a, a lineup. I mean, that guy would get into his office and he'd be reading reports. He'd have the newspaper in front of him. He'd have, uh, they'd have, they'd bring in, he'd have stuff brought in. You didn't really know what everybody, all the media, like the, the, the front office press guys would be bringing stuff to him. He was studying it because he paid attention to everything. Uh, who's hot, who's cold, who the matchups are. They hit lefties well, they not hit lefties well. Um, who are they throwing? What guys they have down in there? What are our guys hitting off them? I mean, he just he just thought so far ahead, in my opinion, of a manager that he made moves knowing what this – it seemed like he knew the situation that was going to pop up at the end of the game, and he was ready for it. And I thought that was so impressive. And the other thing that was impressive is he really – when I was with him for those seven years, he really understood how to manage people. He – so he, so, I mean, excuse me, he managed, you manage things, you lead people, but he knew how to, he, for me, he knew how to lead. So he knew how to sit there and be like, okay, this guy, this is how you fire him up. You got to pamper him a little bit. This guy, you got to get in his face a little bit. And, and, and you got, and it frustrated me at first because I thought I didn't, I didn't need pampering. I need you to be in my face and just tell me what, what it is. Uh, you know, so I didn't understand the pampering aspect of it. I wasn't raised in that kind of a game. Uh, so I didn't understand why he would, he would give guys days off because they asked for it. And I'm like, what you're paying these guys, what? And they're just asking for it after you give it to him. He's a big situation. Well, I mean, he would take guys, if guys, there's guys on our team. I, I didn't, I didn't really, I've never disliked any, I think I've only had one or two teammates that I really didn't care for. I, I've really loved all my teammates, but I don't like when guys ask for a day off because there's, you know, maybe they're struggling for a couple games and they don't want to, they don't want to go play that bothers me a little bit. So he would do it though. And I finally had questioned him on it. And he said, because that's how I maximize the player. And he said, Jeremy, the reality of it is, is one, I'm not afraid of hurting anybody's feelings. And, and he told me that cause I would get mad at him for pulling me out of the game sometimes. Right. Cause I, I hated coming out of the game. 
So he would get mad at me for because I get mad at him. He said, I, I understand that you don't like getting pulled out of the game. I'm not worried about hurting your feelings. I'm trying to win a ball game. And what I have to do is figure out how to maximize everybody's talents in order to get a win. So if I have to give a guy a day off, even though you think it's a shady move or you don't like that he asked for it, but if, I, if he's pouting, he's not any good for me. So I have to be able to adjust that way. And not a lot of managers do that. Uh, and so I thought he did a really good job of open door policy, lets, lets you speak your mind, has no problem hearing you out, still makes a decision even if you don't like it because it's all to win a ball game and what he feels will benefit the team. And when he's made mistakes, he apologized for it. I mean, there was a few times he left me in the game when he shouldn't have, and he pulled me out, and then he pulled me in the office, and he said, man, that's on me. I shouldn't have left you in the game that long. That was, that was dumb. I, I thought you could get out of it, but I kind of knew you were struggling. You know, wrong place to leave you in a ball game here. Bad Colorado was one of them that he apologized. It's like, if a guy's struggling, you don't try to let him work his way out of it. That's a terrible ballpark to try to let people work their way out of it because it's not going to go well. So he said, man, like, that's my fault. And so he apologized as well. And I, I thought that was a, a big deal is a manager that's willing to say, I'm sorry, I made a bad move and, and own it. And so he did all those things. I was, I was really uh, pleased to, to be under him. And even now when I speak on leadership, I use a lot of his stuff uh, to, to do that. So it's great. I'm, I'm curious. Do, do you think in the, in the modern game, I mean, I know Boach has been around, like he's only been gone for a couple of years at this point or one year, actually, this is first season not in the game in this kind of world of analytics where the front office is, you know, sending down all the data for a guy who likes to open up the newspaper and do a lot of things based on just baseball feel of the game. Do you think guys like him can still exist in today's game? No, uh, unfortunately I don't. Uh, uh, and I'm, I'm pretty outspoken on that. I, I, cannot stand how this game is being run i absolutely can't uh this whole analytical approach is no good and they can talk about it all they want on mlb network they can talk about all they want espn they can show me statistics they can show me graphs you can show me whatever you want to show me you can show me moneyball concepts i say every time i say it that's great how many world series has oakland won zero world series it doesn't work full time because I understand that it can work a little bit, but when you go full analytics and you don't go feel of the game, then you're going to lose a lot of what this game is based on. And it is like, when I will guarantee you analytics did not say to put me in game seven of the world series in the second inning. I'll guarantee you that. And Boach was like, no, because I know Jeremy and I know his heart and I know he's not scared and I know he wants out there and he's going to will it if he has to, but he's going to get it done. I need to get it to Bumgarner because the team said that they don't want to face Bumgarner because they can't pick him up that well. Well, analytics would say he just threw a complete game and he's not going to be ready to face Kansas City on a one-day rest for five innings. In right? game seven. Yeah. In game seven. And they don't go with feel anymore. These managers have trapped themselves and these GMs are doing it to them of going with straight analytics. So now they can't even think for themselves. They don't have a feel for the game. They don't have a feel for their players. I'm watching infielders look, instead of watching the game, Joe Randa was the best third baseman I've ever had. Joe Randa understood the game so well and how I pitched 
he would shade himself based on who was up to the plate because, you know, I pitched into righties all the time. He would hug the line sometimes, and he'd take rockets. I mean, there'd be rockets because guys knew it was coming in there. They'd turn on it, but they'd never hit it by him because he's placing himself in the way of a rocket. Like, and I asked him one time, I said, why are you always in the right place? He said, because all you do is pitch your ball cuts into righties and you're way to lefties. You're, he goes, maybe if you didn't pitch so obvious, I wouldn't take rockets off my chest, but I still have my job is to still stop the ball. And those guys were great. Now you're looking at infielders have no idea. They have no feel. They don't know what they're supposed to do. They're looking at their little position coach in the dugout. They're telling them where to go or they're looking at their wrist for a shift situation rather than index cards in their pocket. Yeah. Rather than, Hey man, this lefty is not pitching well inside to a righty. He's leaving the ball away a lot. And on the middle, I need to shade over here based on this hitter and who he is, or dude, he's leaving balls middle in a lot and it's sinking. But if they're going to hit a ball, they're probably going to hit it over to this hole. So I need to take a step over because they're watching the game. Now they don't watch the game. Nobody does. And so now you've taken all feel out of the game, all athleticism out of the game. Your shortstop and second baseman are supposed to be your most athletic guys. And you've taken it away from them because you're overshifting. I don't mind a shift or a, sh a shade, but you're overshifting to where they can't even recover if the hitter mishits a ball in the shortstop where it should be a guaranteed out because he's playing behind second base. And it's all to what? To take away a single? Well, most guys, if I give up a single, I'm okay with that because I can get a double play ball. It, 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 you're not taking away a homer. You're not, I mean, like you're, you're not taking away much here for me and, and, and you're not going with feel and analytics don't tell you if I'm pitching with a bad hammy, if I'm pitching with a sore groin, if the hitter has a sore wrist, none of these analytics say that. So you don't know if they're supposed to be in or not, but these coaches are just like, ah, this is what it says. So we'll throw that lineup out there. And it's just garbage to me. And it, and it takes away from all the, the fun of, of playing this game with, with feel and competitive and guts and heart and drive. I'm letting the computer tell me if I should face a guy and that's garbage. Yeah. My, you're, my you're, you're hitting a, you're sit, So I'm a, I'm a big Astros fan and you're hitting a sore spot for me. Right. So your mad bum story is the perfect one. Right. I mean, we saw this with AJ Hinch and the best pitcher on the planet, sitting in the bullpen and Garrett Cole in game seven of the world series. And I firmly believe that had we put the best pitcher on the planet, I don't care that he just pitched two nights ago. I really don't. Uh, and I don't think Garrett did either. He was ready to roll and he was going to do whatever he had to get his first ring. And to me, I firmly believe that had Garrett gone in that game, the Astros would have their second world series title in three years. And oh, he messed that move up. And AJ is a friend of mine and he was yeah. my first Things, uh, but he, there's no way you leave that guy. You should not lose that ball game with that guy sitting in the pen. If you're going to lose it, it's because he's on the mound, yeah. not because bullpen. No, no. You pull Grinky, Cole has to come in. Yep, has to. And yeah. and he didn't do it. And that that. But that's analytics. I'm telling you, that was because of analytics. And I think it's garbage. It really is. Yeah, yeah. I hear you, Jeremy. Your career. You've been really outspoken about how early on in your career you didn't like baseball and there was a time you hated it a time you wanted to walk away and things really changed for you you pitched for the royals the rockies the cincinnati reds and then the san francisco giants can you talk about that moment kind of that transformational moment in colorado where you gave up the huge home run in your first appearance 
and then you met, I think, a young woman outside a coffee shop who was homeless or, or really, really struggling, and how that really set you on a path to embrace baseball and the joy in baseball because of its platform to help you serve others. Yeah, yeah, that's what happened there. Uh, I, I did hate baseball, uh, mainly because I hated losing. Uh, and when we were at the Royals in that time, and we lost almost 100 games every year except for like once. Um, and I was hurt. I had, you know, some oblique issue. I had a finger blister that was killing me. Um, I was uh, a stalever, so I started and relieved and closed and started and relieved. There was no rhythm to what I was doing on the field, so I didn't understand what I was going in to do that day. Uh, I felt like I was just filling, filling a lineup card spot and the manager was flipping coins on whether to put me in the game or not. So – I, I, I hated it. Uh, and when I got traded, I was excited because I had a fresh start. I wasn't necessarily excited about going to Colorado because when you're not pitching well and you go to Colorado, that's not where you want to go. Um, you want to go to San Francisco where you can leave a ball up in the zone and it doesn't go out of the ballpark, you know. But uh, You've got to hit it to Alcatraz to get it out of there. Yeah, you do. You, you, you gotta, if you get it up there, you tip your hat and say, yep, they got me, you know. So, so that, that to me – was tough, but you know, I did, I was pouting. I was not liking the game. I was not, uh, I was not uh, enjoying the reason why I played because I didn't understand why I was playing the game. I was, it was Groundhog's Day. You get up every day, you go to the field, get cheered, booed, most of the time booed, you go home and you get up and do it again. Like it didn't make sense to me as a ball player why I was playing the game. I just didn't see the impact that I was having until I met that homeless girl in on the, on the street and she just you know she has you know split lip black eye ripped jeans uh bad night and in that 16th street mall right there you know in colorado it, there are a lot of homeless kids there it, it, it's a it's like a mecca for street kids and she definitely didn't have the best night the night before you could tell uh whatever happened and she had a cup of noodles and no water and just dry noodles sitting in front of a right aid and she was just scared and I tapped her on the shoulder and she kind of shied away from me. And I said, I don't want anything to do. I don't, I don't want anything from you. I just want to know if you want something to eat. And she said, please. And I went into Starbucks and got a blueberry muffin uh, and, and one of those green sludgy drinks that, you know, they're healthy for you. And I just, I bought one, I gave it to her and she ripped it out of my hands and said, thank you. And time stopped real quick for me because it was probably only a matter of seconds, but it felt like a long, lot longer than that where, when our eyes met, it wasn't thank you for the food. It was thank you for letting me know I exist. And because everybody walked around her, got the fake phone call, made no eye contact, temporarily deaf, whatever it was, they, and, and it's uncomfortable, right? Like, I get it. Like, homeless, the homeless scenarios, they can be uncomfortable. They, they, they just can be. It's an intimidating situation at times. And it, it but that doesn't give us much of an excuse. And, and so for me, I, I thought that was interesting because she had all these bad scenarios in play. She lived on the street, didn't have a place to live. I was living at that time. I just got traded. I was living in a beautiful hotel, uh, cathedral to go to work in food whenever I wanted it, uh, you know, at a car to drive. And so our realities in the sense of like what people saw were completely different, but our realities on what, what we felt were the same because she didn't, she was scared. She was lost. She didn't know who she was and she didn't feel like she existed. Well, in baseball, no one cries for you when you're having a bad year, right? 
I didn't like the game. I was scared because I didn't know what I was supposed to do with my life. I was lost because I didn't know who I was in the game. I didn't know who I could talk to because there's not a lot of people that you're going to be able to say, I hate baseball. I'm a major league baseball player. I make a million dollars a year and I hate it. People are not going to be like, totally understand, man. Totally get that. Like there's no reality for people there. So you didn't understand who you could talk to about it and you didn't exist because everybody thinks your life is great. And so they're, they're, you, you just want someone to let you know you exist. And so that was what meant to me. I needed someone to ask me if I needed something to eat in the sense of like, what do you need from, you know, and, 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 and I know you're hurting and you're lost and let's gain perspective on life. And so when I went to the field that day, I was super excited to be a baseball player because I was like, I just figured out one of the reasons I'm a baseball player because I have the ability to make an impact to people outside of the stadium that don't wear a uniform, but we all put our pants on one leg at a time, just like everybody else. And how can I use my success on the field as a platform to bring light to issues that need to be seen correctly? Not the political, like I'm going to just talk politics and use my platform to be like, you know, an outspoken you know, whatever, if you want, whatever you feel on politics, it's more of how can I use my platform to make a difference in people's lives to help them achieve dreams like I was able to achieve in whatever they are. And when it comes to poverty and social injustice, that doesn't happen very easy because you can't achieve those things because you don't have the opportunities to achieve those things. And I wanted to help make that possible. And, and that's when my whole career changed, everything changed. You look at the back of my baseball card, you start in the 06 when I met that girl, ended that year 07 to pretty much, I mean, my last year I was hurt a lot of it, but you can probably even take that year, 07 to 15, my numbers are completely different than when they were before. And it's not just the numbers, it was the fact that I enjoyed what I was doing and I put a lot of purpose and passion into being the best that I could be for something other than myself not about me and my cars and houses and money and contracts, whatever it is that you want to buy. It was about how can I be the best that I can be to help provide opportunities for other people. That gave me a why. And that's why I felt like I started to succeed. And did you find, did you have those conversations with teammates and coaching staffs and all of that? And what was, what was kind of their response to it? You know, I think that's, you know, some, some players, that, that's not how they find their drive. They do get their drive from contracts and who they are and, 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 and who they are in the game. Uh, but I've had a lot of, man, I mean, Flannery's a lot, a lot like that. Uh, Tim Flannery, third base, my favorite third base coach of all time. Uh, he, he's very driven by helping other people uh, through, through our platforms and, and, and those things. I have a lot of Christian ball players that were on the same team. I was able to start doing stuff with other guys around the league that felt the same way. And we kind of got together and did some stuff with human trafficking. Uh, I, I think that that, that, but that, that common theme for most guys is a big deal because there's a lot of guys in the game, believe it or not, there are a lot of guys that really don't like the game. They're just good at it because they don't have a purpose, right? Because I mean, once you sign a big contract, then it's, the whole, I, I just want to get good enough to sign my big deal. Okay, once you sign your big deal, you figure out that, wait a minute, that didn't really do it for me like I thought it would do for me. Like, yeah, because you still have to go to the field and you have to function and you have to live and you have to breathe and you have to, your, your brain and heart have to be moved. And I find, I've, I've played with some of the most miserable millionaires in the world. 
they're just miserable people. Like they're just unhappy. They complain all the time. They're unhappy. They, 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 they just, they don't, because they don't know what it is that they're playing for. And I think, but, but I think that there are a lot of guys that kind of resonated. Someone just needed to step out and have the conversation of why do you do what you do? Why do you do it? Well, it can't be for the money because you have the money and now all of a sudden you're still not happy. So why, what is going to bring you joy in this game? And a lot of guys will tell you it is through different acts. I mean, look at Buster Posey. The guy's got a gazillion dollars and, and he started a nonprofit to help support uh, pediatric cancer. Why? Because it gave him a reason to play the game. It gave him a reason to use his platform. It gave him a reason to be a part of the community and to engage his family, his wife and his children in what they, what he does as a baseball player. And and so I, you find a lot of guys like that. Kershaw's being into that stuff. There's a lot of guys into their, their, their fundraisers, right? Because that is what gives them purpose. And engaging guys in that is what, what is a big deal for them because baseball, believe it or not, becomes a job. It just becomes a job after a while. And it's not the whole walk into the big league fields, you know, not that whole like being a little kid in your backyard imagining yourself in a big league baseball game. Once you're there, it's going to become a job just like everything else. And you're going to have to have a why. And if you don't, you're going to burn out. You're going to, you're, you're, going to, you're just going to go away and it's going to be a sad situation. Jeremy, that 2007 season with the Rockies was incredible in a lot of ways. 21 of 22 victories, September and October before you guys went to Fenway park and played the Red Sox in the world series. But there was also tragedy that year down on the minor league system at the double a level. And if any of our listeners want to know why first and third base coaches are now required to wear helmets, it's because Mike Coolbaugh, who is a former major league player, his brother Scott played, was a first base coach for the Tulsa Drillers, the double A affiliate of the Rockies. And he was in the ninth inning of a game, was uh, helping a runner on first base and was struck in his neck by a line drive and and tragically killed. And Jeremy, I, I want to ask you, because you guys in that clubhouse, this was in the early part of you really finding your why and, and why you wanted to play, voted to give his wife and his widow Mandy and their children a full playoff share that turned out to be $233,000 that year. Uh, what was that in terms of its impact? And what did that mean to you to do that? And what was that meeting like in the clubhouse when the guys were stepping up and saying, we really need to do this for Mandy and her kids? Well, it showed me something that I, that I never thought I'd see. What, I mean, that Colorado clubhouse is a good group of guys. I mean, solid group of guys. And they, they, to me, to this day, that was one of – that's probably – even though I have – Giants were obviously my favorite, you know, times of my career and some of my favorite teams to play on. Those guys in Colorado, that was one of my favorite off-the-field teams ever because you would have – literally half the guys who would be like, Hey, we got a steakhouse going at seven. We got sushi at seven 30 show, whichever. And, we, and the whole team would split, figure out where they want to go and show up. There'd be a sushi group or a steak group. And you could mix and match. You'd be like, oh, I went steak last time. I'll go sushi this time. It was a great conversation. I, I, I was never on a team that would, that, that would go out to eat as a team as much as that team did. That would that, because, and there was such a good group. They, they just were so good at being buddies, it was, it was phenomenal to me. And so I kind of knew the heart of that team anyway. 
was kind of like that. But I think once we were breaking down the shares and you have to go through who gets what and all this stuff, it wasn't even a question. The, the, the name got brought up that said, hey, listen, this coach, uh, a lot of those guys knew him. Uh, Kulbach, you know, he, he – he, we obviously he, there's an unfortunate passing, but guys, we have an opportunity here because of what we've done to be able to give some money to help that situation out. And I mean, there was guys on the team that said, "I'll just give them my licensing check. I don't need it." I mean, you had guys on that team that were making some good money, so two hundred grand to them wasn't that big of a deal. And and then it was brought up, well, we don't have to give our licensing check away. Listen, like, why don't we just give them? A licensing check like give them one of the shares and that it was not even like a well let's talk about this it was all in favor i all every guy in there was like i like every guy was like no because that 200 grand is not going to change my life or it's not going to change todd helton's life or brian fuentes or, or matt holiday or whoever you're not going to change our lives with 200 grand that is going to change her entire life because now she has a husband that was making money. They have kids. They had a newborn, I believe, or she was pregnant, I think. One of the two. I think it was like a rough deal, man. And we're like, wait a minute. For her to get 200 grand is going to be a whole game changer for her stress level. And she's already dealing with kids, newborn, death of a husband, and now paying bills? No, that's not okay. And we have the ability to do it. And none of us are ever going to even they're not going to, we're not going to feel a dent in our pocketbook. She's going to feel a huge impact, whether it's paying a house off. So she doesn't have to worry about a house payment to whatever, you know? And, and so when we, when she came on the field and we gave it to her, I think every one of us had tears in her eyes. I, I really do. I, I think every one of us had a, uh, I, I watched it. I, I didn't get to, you know, uh, because I wasn't on the team the next year, but I, I saw the clip of it and it was awesome. And I, I, I mean, what a, that is an act of kindness that that's called unconditional love. And I didn't know none, none of us knew her or her kids personally. And there might've been a couple guys, but I'm pretty sure most of us didn't. And we still, we still poured into their life. And to me, there's no greater impact that you can have on a human being than unconditional love. And, and that's what happened there. And I, I was super proud of that team and, and super thankful we did that. How incredible was it when, when she and the boys came and, and threw out the first pitch before that playoff game against the Phillies? Because I, I remember talking to Chase Utley about it and Jamie Moyer about it, and they said I think they were teared up. Yeah. Yeah, they, it, it is it, to, for her to show that kind of strength. Listen, my husband or my, my spouse dies on a baseball field. The last place I'm going to want to go is to a baseball field and relive that memory of why I'm there. And she showed such strength and her children showed such strength. Uh, it, it was awesome. And I think everybody was just in awe of that, of that situation and in complete awe. And, and you know, what was so cool about that is when we voted her a full share, we had no idea if we were going to get through the first round, second round, it was just, we're giving her whatever we can give her. And then if we would have won the world series, it would have been even bigger, but it was still a lot. And, and so for us, it just got better and better. And we talk about it each round, like going in. And on that World Series round, we were like, this woman has no idea. But we are so – this is – it almost, in a way, subconsciously probably drove us 
you know, like we have that guy that, that, that we call cool our family in mind while we're just trying to win here. You know, it, it almost kind of drove you. And, and I, I thought it was, I thought it was awesome. And watch them throw the, I mean, what is, what a source of strength that she was. And I, I'm so happy that um, she came that, that day to throw the first pitch, but even, even happier that we as a team surrounded her. I mean, that, that was very impressive. So I got to ask you when we're uh, we have, we have Jeremy on video, unfortunately on the podcast, you guys can only hear us, but Jeremy is sitting in front of this amazing painting of the dog pile from, I think the 14 uh, Giants World Series team. But regardless, you got to be in three of those dog piles. Can you tell us what that's like? Very yeah, few people get to do this, right? Yeah, yeah. That's actually 2010. 2010. Yeah, that one there. And it's a really cool one because they actually, you, if you look really, you wouldn't be able to see it from where you're at, but right above Tim Lincecum is actually the, and obviously he's still alive, but it's almost a ghost. It's a very faint, faint, uh, ghost spirit like photo of Willie Mays smiling over the whole team. It's actually oh, that's it's, amazing. Oh, it's actually really cool. Uh, it's a very cool painting. Um, the yeah, the you know, when we lost in 2007, we didn't win a game. And you were like, My only the your only shot at the World Series, and you're gonna we didn't even win a game, you know. So it was kind of a letdown. So you didn't know if it was ever gonna happen again, you know. You don't assume it. I mean, I played with Griff. Griff played, what, 20, 21 years, never even got to the World Series, you know. So it is not that easy to do. And so when you win the first one in 10, you're like, we finally did it. This is great. This is awesome. And then when you're there in 12 and you sweep in 12, you're almost like, you've got to be kidding me. You know, like you're not even – you're like, we're almost like, this is unbelievable, you know. And then you do it in 14 and it's – you're – it, it, it it's almost like a like a it's like a dream it's almost like you're like this team we're just okay in the regular season <laughs> you know like we're just we're not we're not a like a oh my gosh you guys won 106 games like we're not we were never like that and it's like we just when we got to the playoffs the way Sabian and, and, and Bobby Evans built that team, they built that team to basically figure out a way to get to the playoffs and you're going to win because you had three major starters, solid back end of a bullpen, you had defense, and, 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 and your offense is just like, hey, I don't know if we're going to get one run or three runs. We didn't get that many runs, but we had the pitching, and they knew that we had the pitching that had big balls. So there is nobody out there that was afraid of being on that mound. And none of us. And we wanted to be on that mound. And so they knew that. And so it was like that's a whole different level of team. And so we just went through and we pitched our way. And, and I don't think any position player will say differently. I'm not just – I'm not bagging the hitters. I'm saying we pitched our way to winning all those. Like we, we pitched to win. That's how we won those games. and. And, it, and if you gave us four or five runs, the other team might as well just quit because they're not going to win that game. So it, it, that's how it felt. And it was so cool to be on a team that you knew when you got to the playoffs. And we almost got to the playoffs and we're like, if we can get past the wild card, which Bum pretty much did for every, every time, if we can get past the wild card, it's, there's a lot of people that are scared that – you have got to be kidding me. These guys, this 86-game team is going to 
freaking win another world. That's literally the feeling. Yeah. That had. And we had it. We knew if we could get into a best of five and best of seven, we were going to win. And, and that was what was so awesome. And, and we did. It wasn't just that we just, it wasn't that we knew we could win. We actually knew we would win and we did. And that's what was so incredible about that team. It's like, it was like magical things that happened, the way you guys stepped up and everybody just kind of uh, hampered down. I mean, look at Javi Lopez. Shoot, that's four for Hob. He was on the Boston team that beat us in Colorado. I mean, that guy's got four rings. He's never not been to World Series and, and not won, you know? So, I mean, that guy, I mean, it, it's just a, it was a, yeah, to be a part of all of that, I could have never dreamt it. I could have never, man, I, I was happy to get to the big leagues. I was happy to get 10 years in the game. Ended up getting 14, three World Series, part of four, played with my heroes, Ken Griffey Jr., Randy Johnson, two of my heroes growing up, played with them on teams, helped Randy save his 300th win. I mean, I, I was like, I, I can't say anything bad about my career. It, it, even if it started terrible, it ended. Is that, and I finished my last game. Of, I won a world championship on game seven on Kansas City. Like the team that I hated, that made me hate baseball. I now loved it. It was like a circle of life, you know? Like it was incredible. The, the whole thing was just amazing. What is it like, just the environment around baseball in San Francisco, Jeremy? Because you went there uh, from 2009 to 2015. And, and you, you want to talk about support for the squad? I mean, we're talking 3.2, 3.3 million fans in that stadium a season. I mean, that's 41 to 42,000 a night. Yeah. What is that like to have that kind of support, that kind of knowledge of the game to be kind of larger than life superstars in a town like that, that just loves the Giants? Ah, man, the energy is incredible. I mean, absolutely incredible. And, and I'm telling you what the, uh, the, the, the electricity, the going in there, it was a similar feeling for me, if not the same, in some ways more intimidating than go, like, just like going in the Yankee stadium in Boston when they were rocking and rolling, man, to go in there, you were so intimidated as a player when you were on teams to go, go, go play them. And, and you just felt almost like you were happy to just win one game. You know, that, that's kind of what you felt like, right? You just were like, hey, man, let's just give it our best shot, keep it close, try to win one game, feel good about ourselves. Well, I feel like that's what a lot of teams felt like. And a lot of players would say it to us after the, you know, they leave the series. They were like, we rolled in. He goes, man, the teams would be like, we're going to roll in here. We're hoping to get one game because they're not going to give up any runs. Because our team area was ridiculous. So it was like, we're not going to get any runs. It's a tough ballpark to score runs in and they can pitch. I mean, you can't score runs in that ballpark anyway. And you got Lincecum, Kane, Bum, Vogie, I mean, coming at you. And then on top of that, you got Crazy Beard Wilson. You got, you got freaking Romo, you know, dancing around out there, doing his little finger pointing, shooting, whatever deal. You got me throwing scuds and not having any idea where it's going. And, and hitters were like, I don't know if it's a strike or a ball, you know. Hobby throwing. It was just so much for hitters that it was like, it's going to be hard to beat these guys. And, and they were, and you felt it. You felt when you walked out there, you looked at the other team and they were just happy to take one to three and they were just happy about it. And, and they didn't expect it. They were, they were just like, Hey man, let's just walk out of here with one win. And that gave us so much momentum and the fans were intimidating and loud. I mean, they were loud. 
they they love they're they're really bad winners. So the fans are terrible winners. They are in your face, busting you, yelling at you. Like warming up in that bullpen as a visitor would be the worst experience of your life. You know, they were just all it's like Philly, you know, they were just all over you. And it, it just it made it difficult for guys. And it was cold and 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 it was just but what a what an awesome experience to be able to be a part of that, feel that energy, everybody pulling for you. And you went to the ballpark every day, like excited to be a baseball player. That that's what that that, that it felt like. It, it was awesome. And how many uh, Gilroy garlic fries did you sneak down into the clubhouse? Yeah, you didn't. Have, shoot, you you actually felt full just from the smell, like, <laughs> right? <laughs> that super <laughs> offensive smell in that beautiful yeah. ballpark. <laughs> yeah, it was like it ate them because it was like the smell was so potent, you know? <laughs> right. So, Jeremy, uh, human trafficking is a huge passion of yours, and it's something you really have channeled a lot of your energy and resources to, to fighting. What are you doing now that you're a retired player? To, and how do you go about starting to, to just put a dent in this just global issue of slavery uh, as it pertains to, to people? And, you know, I guess we learned in school that, that slavery ended during the Civil War or shortly thereafter with the Emancipation Proclamation, but it's, it's still going on in 2020. Yeah, it's still going on. It's probably more now uh, than then, to be honest with you. It's $32 million, or $32 billion business, but it's over 32 million slaves. Probably more than that. Those numbers are probably light, to be honest with you. But uh, So people ask me, they say, do you think you could end human trafficking? And there's a lot of us that fight human trafficking and say, absolutely, we'll end modern-day trafficking. I can't give you that answer. I really can't. I can't say yes to that. Here's why. Because as long as greed and lust exist, it's probably going to keep happening. Because it's, it, 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 these guys are so smart. They are so smart. I mean, these, these, these organized crime guys are so far ahead of the curve on how they're doing it, how they're moving these girls, how they're creating like these jobs, these fake jobs that look like jobs at slavery. It's really hard uh, to, to stop all of it. The only way you stop all of it is if you quit, if, 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 if people quit paying for it. So you, like, it, it just is that. And, 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 and so for me, it's not about ending it completely. It's not about that. It's about saying as a human being, I have a duty to love my neighbor as myself. I have a duty to not live for myself. I have a duty to look at another human being and say, you deserve to have a day where you say one day I'm going to be, I had a day in Oakland where I looked at my dad and said, one day I'm going to play on this field. And my dad gave me every opportunity. It wasn't, I mean, he didn't send me to every pitching coach or pitching camp, but he gave me opportunity to play. And trafficking doesn't allow you to have your ability to say one day I'm going to be because it's, it's not one day I'm going to be. It's today I tell you who you are and you're going to be this and you're going to be this and you're going to be an object and you're going to do this for me. And you're a, you're a commodity. And the human being is a reusable commodity. It's a $200,000. You are basically a, a girl being trafficked in the U.S. until they get to a certain age is 200 grand a year. They're a reusable product. So that, that's what they tell you you are. And, and to me, that's not okay. I, I, that is not okay. And, 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 and so I fight for it because it's my human right. It's my human 
I mean, there's something in me that says that I'm going to fight to help you because like whatever you want to be, you should be able to be like, you should be, there's a lot of brilliant people out there that never come to fruition because they've been trafficked. They've been sold because they live in poverty. They've been sold because they've got parents that are just terrible human beings. They've got, they've been stolen, all these kind of things. And I just have said, I don't know if I, we can end it, but that doesn't mean that we can't try to fight for it because I, I it's just like hunger. I don't know if hunger, we could end hunger. You can legitimately end hunger in this world. Will you? Probably not because you have too, too much corruption of people hoarding. It's a great thing, right? It's like I'm hoarding the food. Look what happened in COVID. COVID hit and it had nothing to do with toilet paper and you can't even get toilet paper. Like, because people freaked out. Hum, humanity went out the window. It wasn't I need to make sure other people are taken care of. It's like everybody for themselves. I'm going to go get all the milk, eggs, and toilet paper and have it at my house. And then I'm going to go take a bunch and then try to sell it for four times the price that other people were trying to do when they were like going and buying all this hand sanitizer. And next thing you know, they're selling out of their house to make money it, because it's greed, right? It's not a, Hey, we need to kind of come together as one. You see it. it it's going to happen. But I fight for hunger because of the fact that I, basically look at it that I love my neighbor as myself. So I look at when I'm hungry, I want to eat and I'm going to eat. So I want to make sure that that person over there has food. When I, when I want something to drink, I get water. I want to try to make people sure people have fresh water. I want to make sure people have a house to live in over their heads. You know what I'm saying? Like, like, and you could even go even down to the, to the, to, 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 to getting into the, the sex trade and you can get even to that seriousness of a level and say, you should be able to sleep with whoever you choose to sleep with, not who someone dictates that you sleep with. So I fight for the very fact that you need to have a choice, not a, not a, not a forced demand. So, so for me, that is how I look at everything in this injustice world is I don't know if we can end it, but that doesn't mean I shouldn't do my part in trying to make sure that I help and do my part in helping people achieve the same things that I was able to, to, to achieve, whether it be eating, whether it be hunger, I mean, the water, uh, dreaming big, having dreams, having opportunities, all these things should be what we fight for as human beings. And I've said this time and time again, success is not reaching your, it is not becoming the president of your company or, 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 or owning your own business or being a fortune 500 or being a hall of famer or a world series champion or Whatever you want to say, success is using your success when you've reached the top to give back to other people to make sure they have an opportunity to be a success and reach the top. That to me is success. And if you can't do that, you're not a successful person to me. And I've met tons of influential people. I mean, we're, I'm talking anywhere between presidents to politicians to Fortune 500 to billionaires to, to, to unbelievable athletes, actors, actresses. They don't matter to me if they're not creating an opportunity to give other people success. And if they don't do that, you're not successful to me. You might have reached a successful point, but to me, you're not considered successful in my eyes if you're not doing something to give back. And I think that is where I focus on when it comes to fighting for injustice in the world that I live in. And you wrote, you became an author at what, 33 to stir a movement? It's a great yep. book. And you Thank talk you. in that book about how you feared very rationally 
that you could have become part of the sex trade in Thailand? On, on, what, on a trip there with your, your family when you were younger? What, what happened? Yeah, I was in Thailand. I was, I was a, uh, I think I was in third grade. And I, my, my sons are all, well, two of my sons are blonde. And the other son has brown hair like me, but becomes blonde in the summer. And because I lived in Guam and, and I lived on the equator, I was a towhead. I was blonde as you can be and brown as you can be. I mean, I ran around with just shorts and nothing else all year round because it's 95 the whole time. So I was a, I was a brown kid with blonde hair. I mean, surfer, I mean, as surfer kid as you can look, as you can look like. And what we didn't know back then, it's still now, but blonde haired boys are, 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 are sought after in the human trafficking world. Blonde haired girls, blonde haired boys. I mean, it is a sex trade. Like if you get a blonde haired boy, it's a big deal. It's super gross. Well, no one knew in the eighties that, I mean, it wasn't known. It happened. The sex trade was definitely obviously there, but it wasn't talked about. Shoot, it wasn't even talked about much. I mean, it was probably, really it's only been exposed for the last 12 years, probably ish. 12 to 14 years is when this sex trade exposure really got to be pretty prevalent. But, you know, back then I was walking on the street and and back then in the eighties, you let your kids do whatever. It, it, It really wasn't thought about. And I was probably 60 feet ahead of my mom and dad walking in Thailand and we're just walking on the street, checking stuff out. My dad just kind of was seeing me up ahead of him. And, and all of a sudden, this guy steps out of a strip club and tries to pull me in. And he says, come here. And he grabbed my arm. And my dad, it's the only time I've seen my dad be physical. He's a military guy, but it's the only time I've seen him be physical in front of me. And he physically removed the guy. Uh, and my dad was just mad because he was like, why would you try to pull my third grade son into a strip club? What's wrong with you? Like, that's not what was happening there. And I didn't really think about it. And my dad didn't either until we started talking about this stuff. That's why it didn't make sense. Well, that's not, that's why. Cause they, all they saw was some blonde headed kid by himself. No, it was a guarantee for them. I'd be on the black market in 72 hours and gone. You would never find me ever again. Right. And so in, in Thailand, that's where it's at. They have the karaoke bars and, and, and child, you know, uh, sex slavery is, 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 really big in, in Thailand. And, uh, I did a lot of, I, I've been over there. I've rescued kids over there. Um, I've been with kids that have been rescued from, we're talking 18 months old rescued out of the sex trade. It is disgusting as you can possibly imagine to 18 and they're in an orphanage that we've helped build. And it is, it is gross over there. And that's what was happening. And, and it, it was super scary, but I think that's why subconsciously, I wouldn't say consciously at the time, but subconsciously, it's probably why I had a heart for that right away because I felt like there was a little bit of that. I, I saw that and, and didn't even know that I saw it, you know? So we had a family friend who's a pastor and he and his wife adopted a young girl, 11 or 12 years old from Romania, formerly communist Romania. And she was in an orphanage there and her life is now totally different in the United States, but it's very possible that had things not worked out and she came over here and had every opportunity to be a success that she would have been on the streets as a prostitute as a seventh grader. Oh yeah, no doubt. No it doubt. makes you, it makes you sick to even contemplate. Yep. Yep. There's no doubt about that. They, the average, what people don't realize in this country, cause you think America, well, the average sex slave in America is 12. So it, 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 it's not, I mean, my son's 13 
And I could not imagine a daughter, I don't have a daughter, but a daughter a year younger, my son is an average sex slave on the streets of America. Like it is super sick. And, and it, 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 the, the black market is so gross. And what people don't understand is they, they send these little girls off to have all this augmentation done. So when they get put out into the strip clubs or on the streets, they look like they're 20 because they're developed. Well, it's all fake. They, they, they made them into a 20 year old, but they're not 20. They don't talk, they don't speak, you know, and, and it, what they're doing is super gross. And it, it's gonna, you, you, you get, I get kind of angry. I'm a grace-based guy, man. I believe in forgiveness and I believe in living in grace, but man, I don't have a lot for a trafficker. I really don't. And it is really difficult. In fact, when I was asked to go, um, to go and uh, when I was asked to go over to Thailand, to visit my orphanage over there, the orphanage that I, that I, that I was a part of helping with, I did go over there and asked if I wanted to go into the karaoke bars and see how this stuff worked. Talking about watching these kids get put out and get funneled. I said, are you kidding me? No. Like I said, for one, I wouldn't just sit there and watch how anything worked because that's gross. But two, it wouldn't go well because I would not rescue those kids me and the guy would have an issue and it wouldn't go over well because I would, I'm a justice guy. So I'm like, Oh, I'd let justice happen. And so I said, I would be counterproductive to what we're trying to be over there because you rescue the kids and, and I'm going to, there's going to be a bar fight like real quick, you know? And, and so I said, that won't, that won't be, that won't do what we're trying to, that won't help what we're trying to help. So I would rather just, you guys, if you guys want to go rescue them, go rescue them. I want to be around the kids that are at the, at the orphanage and just love on them and help them be kids again. I play dodgeball with them and basketball and uh, volleyball. And we, I just play, I just had a great time, you know, be, but you were super sad when you were just watching, like these kids were put in some adult situation. I don't have a lot of grace and mercy for that situation to me. It, it, to me, it's, it's super gross and not okay. And, but you just got to believe that, you know, what you're doing is helping. If you can help one person, to me, you win. Because if I was in that situation, I would want help. And if someone could help me, I'd take it. That doesn't mean I would expect it to end. Even if I was in trafficking, I wouldn't say, well, you helped me, so it should end. I would just be thankful that I got help and got out of there and I try to help other people. And that's kind of what I'm hoping for. It's, it's more of just doing your duty as a human being. And if you see it happening or if you, if you can help it out, you help out and then it is then let the cards fall where they fall, but not doing anything is not okay. So that's where I kind of hang out in that camp. So do you have any advice maybe for listeners uh, who are interested in this topic on even one or two, even easy things that they can do from where they are that can start to move the needle and hopefully get them more involved in this topic for you? Uh, you know what? I think what happens is, is you, once you, once you're aware, once you're aware of the situation, I think you, you, you have every community right now in America. The good thing about America is right now, every community has a, um, they have human trafficking stuff going on. There's a lot of groups now that are, that are in on this. Uh, so for me, finding groups, there's not for sale, not for sale. The group I did with in San Francisco, awesome group. They kind of moved into more like how do we create business adventures to fight trafficking? Uh, so that's kind of and they, and they do stuff with girls too. They they have these these these, these housing areas now and they, and they do some schooling. They do a great job. So if you're into that kind of stuff, like like uh, global corporate 
type ways to, to fight human trafficking, they're a great group for it. I've started a couple businesses with them. One is doing really well. It's called Rebel. It's R-E-B-B-L. And you can find those drinks in Whole Foods, pretty much every right now grocery store. We're doing really well. And it's like a, they, they we moved in. We started as like almost like a tea kombucha. Now we're kind of into more of the coconut milk. So there's like protein and mocha and green matcha and just different types of milks and stuff. It, it's doing really well. Uh, so we started that because portion that goes back to trafficking, right? So you can start that. Then there's places like Exodus Road. Exodus Road is an organization that I helped, and there's a lot of baseball players in on that. Uh, Adam Roach is really big into it. Uh, and you're actually funding missions. So guys that are like militant or just like, dude, we love the Navy SEALs. I like the Navy SEAL stuff. So you take these, these recon guys, or they, 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 they go in and you fund their mission. You, they go in and they bust down doors and they take these kids out and rest. It is incredible. I mean, you're, oh man, and you, we bought them rigs and cars. And this guy, the guy that ran, that runs it was like one of the most wanted guys in Thailand. He used to live over there and do it over there. He had to come back here because he was pretty much hunted by the Thai mafia, right? So, but they do recon missions. So there's that way to do things. And then there's just straight groups here. I mean, America has a battle that is, we're terrible here for it. So you have organizations here that teach you how to look for it, what to look for, who you can contact, uh, what can generation alive, my organization, generation alive. We do stuff, sorry, my dog. Uh, we do stuff like, uh, we, ba we pack backpacks that when we rescue girls, they get, uh, they get, uh, a backpack full of stuff, feminine products, bras and underwear, toothpaste, and these girls cry when they get these backpacks because when you rescue them off the street, they have they don't have anything. So you we have we have people, college students that go and make these backpacks for for these situations and pass them out. I mean, there's so many different things you can do in your community and and find out what's available in your community uh, right now that's available to it and and because it, it's happening. Trust me, it does not matter where you're at; it is happening in your community, and it can be an influential area too. There's there's wealthy people that are there's trafficking going on there they, it, it does not matter it's not just poverty areas it's just more prevalent in the poverty areas obviously but uh it is all over and and for me uh just just becoming a part of something that can get back whether it be hunger or trafficking or i don't know I, I i i we kind of get into everything we, we have kids trying to figure out like people we have we have we have a couple schools in in Spokane, Washington, where my, my, my offices are at, where my CEO and all the staff live, man, they got kids making gardens for the community just so that community can come and grab some vegetables, you know, like it's a cool deal, man. And, and giving back the pains of poverty is, is definitely known in a community, but it's what kind of acts of compassion can you do, do to help alleviate those pains? And that's kind of where I, I, I sit in that camp a lot. But uh, right now I know that hunger is a major issue and trafficking is a major issue. So we, we focus in those areas because it's, it's a definite situation that you're having to deal with in every community out there. Yeah. And I think in this current environment, the social media world that we live in politically divisive, all of those things, if we can maybe take Jeremy, your idea of grace, your just general feel for is, am I helping another human being today? You know, yeah. these simple questions that I think if each of us take just a couple minutes a day to ask ourselves, and we each just do one little thing. It may be a little thing to us, as you said, but it's going to be a big thing to somebody else. And, you know, treating everyone with a little bit of grace and a little bit of understanding and understanding that we're not all 
cut from the same cloth. We don't all have the same resources. We don't all have the same skin color. We don't all have fill in the blank, right? And, you know, to me, I've tried to do that, especially during COVID, you know, where we really are starting to see even more clearly the gaps between the haves and the have nots, right? And, um, you know, I hope our listeners can hear some of your stories today because I think you're a really, really inspirational guy who, frankly, I'm not sure you're trying to be inspirational, right? I think you're just being you. And, um, and by the way, for everyone who I've never met Jeremy before, we literally saw each other for the first time and I can hear it in your voice that kindness at the end of the day is what drives you. And so I hope our listeners hear that too. And hopefully they, they take a minute to, to go, go maybe look up some things that they're passionate about. Right. And, and find, try to help find a solution, whatever that is, tiniest little solution, big one, you know, give people the opportunity to dream. So, you know. I don't know about you, Zach, but I think Jeremy's done a fantastic job here and I'm excited to go see what we can do to help him out. For sure. No doubt about that. Jeremy, what's that like when you hug the kids? Uh, you know what, man? You, you, when you just, the kids, they just smile. You know what I'm saying? Like when, when you're with these kids. Because kids know when they're loved. That's 100%. And when they see you and they know that you helped put a basketball court in for them, like we did with this, this Thailand, and a bunch of ball players helped me, I just was able to get over there uh, to see it. The joy that they have, what's incredible is it's true, pure joy. So when they're playing basketball, it's, they love it because they are now they – didn't, they didn't ask you to put in the situation they got put into – so when they got rescued from it and then someone pours into them to a point where they are just, you never met these people and some guy from America put this basketball court in so we could play again. And now he's over here playing with us. Like they feel love. They feel valued. They feel important. They feel like someone actually said they exist because yes, we did this for you. We, I want you to have fun again. I want you to be a kid, not an adult. You were put in adult situations. No, you be a kid and we're going to have fun and, and we're going to play games and to see the smiles on their face. It's, it's a different type of smile because the smiles that you have on a face here in America, they're having fun, but it's almost expected, right? No, I expect to have a playground to play on, or I expect to, you know, like it's, it's an entitlement thing. And Americans in general probably have a, a, a level of entitlement that, that other countries don't have because we live in a very wealthy country. Like overall, the poorest people in America have more money than most people in the world. Like it's it just because they don't have anything, you know. So to see smiles on their faces, you know, like it is pure, non-entitled joy of just like thank you. And, and, and they don't take anything for granted. And to me, that's what's so fulfilling about it is these kids were loved and these kids were um, loved by people they had never met. And there's no other feeling in the world that can match unconditional love. It just, there isn't. And there's a lot of conditional love in this world. There's a lot of conditional love in our society. And when someone shows unconditional love, it just there's there's no there's nothing that can match that, and I think kids feel it more than anything, more than all any age, adults, the kids, the kids feel it more than anybody. I wanted to ask you this because you wrote in your book that when you were younger, you, you had to overcome some anger and some some turbulent times, some some bumps in the road, 
and you see these emails that go out and, and Barnes and Noble or, or Amazon or whatever has all these self-help books and, and transform yourself with three easy tips. How did you make that uh, a transformation from, from an angry teenager uh, to a guy who lives in grace and forgiveness and, and who lives for others through servant leadership? Uh, you know, honestly, you know, for me, if you, if you've read up on me a little bit, I'm a huge man of faith. Man, so uh, I, I believe in God a lot. I don't, I don't shy from it. I didn't shy from it in the game. I was a pretty outspoken uh, Christian man. And um, the biggest reputation I have, representation I have of a servant leader, unconditional love, what it means to live in grace and mercy and forgiveness, whether you believe he existed or didn't, or believe he's, he, he's God or not, is Jesus Christ. I mean, they, the guy was... I mean, he is, he was that. He walked this earth being that. So whatever you think of Jesus, of, of being in story or in truth, whether he died, resurrected, whether he didn't, however you want to see it, but, the, but when you read about the man and how he walked the earth, it resonates with everybody because what he represented, you could talk to anybody across any religion, any atheist, whatever it is. If you show the kind of character that he showed and the way he treated people everybody feels good everybody so it doesn't matter how you see him if you act like he acted and how he was talked about and how his actions were talked about everybody you can't you, you can't be angry with that there you can't be angry with loving people there's no law against love like you can't be angry with unconditional love you can't be angry with being with with having kindness shown to you you can't be angry with having someone give you something when you need it and, and you can't do it for yourself and someone comes in and gives it to you. You, you, you can't be angry with that. And I think in any time that you do that, kids all the time in public schools will come up to us and be like, why do we feel so happy to package meals? And I said, well, are you asking my opinion? Cause then I can give it to you. They said, yeah, why? I said, because it's the love of Jesus. It's what he did. This kind of stuff right here is exactly what he stood for. That's why it's fulfilling because your soul is literally fulfilled. There's something in you that says, I was born to be able to provide unconditional love for somebody. And I was born to be able to be happy. My soul, everybody's soul is happy when they do something for somebody that is not at a, at a, there's not no condition to it. There's no strings attached. I just want to do it for you. And they see a smile on someone's face because they do it. Nobody does it not smile. Like they don't, they don't get angry because someone got, was happy that they did something for them. Right. So that's, that's kind of how I feel. And that's how I live my life. And, and that's how I try. I don't, I'm not good at it all the time. I fail. I've, I've, I've not acted perfectly in love. I've, 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 I've shied away from homeless people from time to time. I've thought bad stuff about people. I've rejected things. I've, I've not always been perfect, but I'm human. And, but I know that what I stand for, and it's on my left forearm where it says no man shall live for himself. That is on my forearm for a reason, because I believe that everything I do, if it doesn't have any kind of give back impact, it's not worth doing. And that's kind of how I live now even. So that in my next chapter in life, that's what I'm designing my next scenario for is, is a give back situation. So uh, everything comes from that because I, I, I stand on that foundation. So Jeremy, um, as we kind of start to, to head to the finish line of our talk today um, and we kind of, kind of put a bow on your career, who's the best teammate you ever had? Oh man, man, that's really tough. I, I tell you what, one of the, 
Um, my two of my best friends are Matt Cain and Buster Posey uh, to this day. Uh, but I would say even at a character and how he carried himself almost to a point where it's like, are you even real is Mike Sweeney. That guy's the nicest man on the freaking planet. Uh, and he was a great baseball player um, and how he showed his character, how he loved on guys and, and was encouraging to everybody. No one hated him. Great guy. To me, he was an unbelievable teammate. Uh, it, I, I can't put a, a finger on just one of my on one because I have probably about six or seven guys. One of my best friends, Brian Fuentes, closer of the Colorado Rockies, one of the, my favorite teammates, and he is my he, he's still, he's my hunting buddy. We go we do hunts together. I mean, he's a great guy. Uh, you know, what do you guys so, hunt? Uh, we hunt all over. We've hunted in Africa. We've hunted in uh, Mexico together. We've hunted in in uh, uh, we we've hunted in a couple times here in in Texas together. Uh, we just we just love going on adventures and we do it with each other. It's kind of a thing we do, you know. So every couple of years we figure out a. Place. Have you been on a safari yet? Uh, I I did ask, I did a safari hunt. Yeah, uh, I have not been on just a photo safari, but I, I mean, I took a lot of photos on that, and, you know, so it was kind of a both thing for me. And I love Africa. I was in Botswana. That's where I was hunting. And I ran into lions and elephants and cheetahs and leopards. And it was the most, I could go there every year and I could do a photo safari there. I, I, Africa is beautiful, man. I mean, it is, you are definitely not the top of the food chain in that country, but uh, it, it is an incredible place uh I, I my son and i my oldest when he turns 16 i promised i'd take him and uh I'm, I'm already looking forward to it i it is an awesome place it's if you if anybody could ever do even if you don't hunt even if you're just like a photo person a safari it'll change your life man it is incredible and it is it's an awesome in its real sense of the word right awe it is a true awesome experience uh, to go there so growing up watching Ken Griffey Jr., what was it like for you to be in the bullpen in Miami that night that he hit number 600? You know, funny story on that. I, I got mad at him one day uh, because he was striking out. And I was like, dude, what are you doing? Like, I'm, I was mad at him. Like, literally mad at him. Like, so the thing to know about Ken Griffey Jr. is this guy is – he's a grown-up kid. Yep. He, he just – he is. And he just loves playing baseball. That's right. He does. And – what, I mean, we're talking that he, the ball hit the glove and he'd swing and miss. And I'm like, what? I went in there. I'm like, hey, man, if you're not going to try, then quit. I was mad at him. And he looked at me and he said, why do you think I'm not trying? I'm like, dude, you're swinging. After, you're a good hit, bro. You're an unbelievable talent. You're telling me that that ball's hitting the glove and then you're swinging. And he said, I want to hit my 600th homer in Miami. And I'm like, you can't do that, Griff. You can't guarantee that. And he said, oh, I can't? I said, no, you can't. you got to just go for it, dude. You're going to get it. But, man, give us some. Two days later, he walks up, hits his 600th homer, points at me in the bullpen, and then signs a bat to me after the game. And I was like, <laughs> got to be kidding me. Like, you can call that? I mean, but that's just how good he is. He was good, man. And uh, I <laughs> – I was just laughing in the bullpen. I was like, there's no way this guy just did that. Like, he just – is he wanted his family there. I get it. Like, you can't fly your family to every – people don't have – he has the money to do it. People don't have the time 
to come into every game for his six hundredth homer. So he didn't want to accidentally hit it anywhere but in Miami, you know. And I thoroughly enjoyed him. Uh, he was awesome, and and I wish I could have played with him longer. He, he and that was, had to be tough that night. Where he was what traded on the flight to Washington, and he's coming up the elevator at four in the morning, and he's like, "Yeah, I got to go. I'm going to the White Sox." Yeah, yeah, it was crazy. Jeremy, if you were to write a letter to yourself before your major league debut with the Kansas City Royals, knowing what you know now, what, what would it say? Uh, I think some of it would say was, hey, man, you're going to fail, and it's going to be okay. Uh, the only way to learn in this game is to fail. And this game is a game that uh, is, a, is a kid's game played by men. No one's going to feel bad for you. And if you, take, if you take failure as a negative, you won't make it. And understand that you ride the wave of success. Ride it as long as you can. And when you fail, don't, you didn't fail. I think failure is the worst word on the planet because I don't believe in failure. I believe in teachable moments. And if I could say anything, this game is going to be filled with teachable moments for you. And if you choose to look at it as failure, you're not going to make it. If you choose to look at it as a learning experience, you have a chance to be great. So know that when you go in and you don't succeed, Man, learn from it, get better, own it, don't make excuses, and move on. And when you're succeeding, remember where you came from, ride the wave, but always know that you don't get too high in this game because you're going to fall on your face. It's a guarantee. So uh, that's kind of what uh, I would probably, in a nutshell, say to myself. Awesome. Matt, any closing thoughts for Jeremy? No, this is really inspiring. Thanks for doing it, Jeremy. You, uh, you really, you know, it's funny. We, when Zach and I started talking about, um, I brought this idea to Zach uh, a couple months ago. I've always wanted to, so I own a fashion events business, funny enough, in Texas. So we own fashion weeks around the state. And I've gotten to meet a lot of professional athletes who want to come sit front row at fashion shows. And over time, what I've learned is, just like you said, everybody puts their pants on one leg at a time and it does not matter your lot in life. And I feel like athletes today, the only time they're ever in the news is when they've done something bad. And the reality is, is that every athlete I've been around has at the end of the day been just a really good dude. And I know not everyone is, but everyone I ever have I've met, has been and we just wanted to tell stories from men and women who've who've seen who've seen the who've seen the spotlight right who've been in the ballpark and they've seen all of that but at the end of the day they found their why right and in your case I think you've really explained that really well and I'm glad that our our listeners have gotten to to hear your story so thank you so much for sharing it with us yeah absolutely guys I appreciate you having me on Jeremy, we can't wait to keep track and, and keep apprised of all the great things you do in your second act now, man. You're, you're 41 and retired and uh, probably just getting started, knowing you. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You, you got, I mean, uh, well, one of you is in Austin. I'm actually starting a brewery down here, and I'm going to run a live podcast out of the brewery. I'm going to bring in athletes and business leaders, and we're going to come in and talk about these kind of things, life at the brewery. So Very cool. uh, we're going to be here soon. And uh, so if you guys are following us on social, so follow me on social media, it's launched. Don't be afraid to give me a shout. If you guys want to come down and hang out, we can do a podcast out of there too. And, uh, yeah. uh, we're, we're having it. We're about, and I'm, and it's a give back brewery. So all of my beers percentage of every beer, whatever beer you have goes back to a different cause. And you can read about the cause when you order the beer, it kind of shows you exactly what the cause is, or is, is kind of, uh, 
associated with. So we're excited to get this going here shortly. I love so, it. I'll come down and have a beer with you. Heck yeah. That'd be great. We'll do that'd it. Awesome. Well, Jeremy, best of luck to you, man. Say hello to the fellas and, and Willow the dog, man. She's, is she the queen of the house? She is, man. She, she, uh, she made an appearance there a couple minutes ago. Yeah, she did. She did. She actually chased my cat. I have a huge Tatanka. I have a huge cat. This Maine Coon is like 40 pounds. It's massive. And uh, she's chasing that. But she's getting sent out Friday. I'm taking her up about four hours away. She, she's getting some training done. She's, she's, we're going to lock her in. She's a red lab. And uh, she's now at a level where it's like, you're going to get locked in. You're getting a little bit too uh, full of yourself there, young lady. So we're, we're going to lock her in and uh, do some stuff. And we're excited. I, I, I'm, I'm so pumped to see her, man. I mean, to have her. The boys and I love her. It's great. I saw her um, retrieving in the pool, man. She's yeah. right at home. I'm telling you, dogs, just it's their instinct, man, to go get it and go have a blast and just, uh, yeah, and just play awesome. and have fun. So. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Jeremy, best of luck to you. And uh, just thanks so much for joining us today. Really enjoyed it. Thanks, guys. Thank you so much to Jeremy Affelt for joining us. Man, he's just such an inspiring guy. Um, Zach, I uh, got to cover him in Cincinnati, so I know you guys knew each other just a little bit. But my first time to get to chat with him, and, you know, thanks so much, really, just for, uh, man, we talked for, I think, over an hour. And, um, you know, it's fun to meet anybody who's got three World Series rings, right? I mean, I don't, I don't care who you are. That is a feat in and of itself. But um, considering some guys like Ken Griffey Jr. have never been to the World Series. Right, exactly. And, 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 and he talks about how, how difficult it is and, and, never being, and never taking that for granted. But I'm, I love that at the end of the day – what it seems like he's most proud of is an orphanage that he helped build in Thailand. Right. You know, I know he's, I know he's proud of his baseball playing days and I know he has his buddies and, and, and his love of the game, but at the same time, you know, finding, this is what we really wanted to talk about on this podcast, right. Was, was finding athletes who found their why even after the fact. And, and he's really living that out. I think one of the things to realize about professional athletes is the, the really good ones that sign that big contract, whether it's basketball, football, baseball, these guys become financial empires unto themselves. And it's one thing to become a multimillionaire or a millionaire dozens of times over. It's another to be able to use those resources and use that platform for good and to make a difference for someone besides yourself. And that story about him meeting a homeless young woman, teenager, young woman, whatever the case may be, I don't know how old she was in Colorado, that really turned his whole career around and his whole mindset around. And I think that's one thing we can do as people is wake up with a mindset. You know, I've seen it on Twitter. We can rise and whine or we can rise and shine and find a way to live for other people. Because honestly, Matt, like when you really think about it, the world is a pretty dark place. And I would think your life is pretty dark if you just wake up and think about yourself. Yeah. I mean, how, how ridiculous is that concept? I'm just going to think about me today. It's, it's absurd. Yeah. And, and I tried to bring it up in the, in the interview there towards the end, but you know, I think, I think in this sort of divisive world that we live in, you know, I hope, and it's a little tough in the COVID world, but I hope what people take away from Jeremy is, look, if, if you don't have a whole lot of diversity in your life, that's okay. Like we get it. We all live in our own little bubbles. Um, but if you don't have a whole lot of diversity in your life, I hope at the end of the day that you will go out and find some of that diversity. Correct. Go meet, go meet somebody who doesn't look like you, who doesn't have the socioeconomic um, background that you do that, 
you know, is a different race, is a different gender, is LGBTQ, you know, is whatever, right? I mean, um, because you stand to learn something, right? At the end of the day, you know, we all are better people in my mind when we're surrounded by different types of people. If you only surround yourself with those who look, think, and act like you, then what are you? What what are we doing here? You know, I mean, aren't aren't you just at the end of the day? Like it, it basically becomes Groundhog Day at that point, right? Like everything is basically the same. And you know, I hope in this in this world of political division and everything else, you know, it seems like the perfect opportunity, really, to kind of look inward and say, hey, let's let let let, let me think about doing something just a little bit different today. And, and hopefully that, that one thing then becomes something new tomorrow and then something new the next day. And maybe your mindset really does start to, to edit in the same way that somebody like Jeremy's did. What a career too, you know, World <laughs> Series in 2010, 2012, 2014. It was almost like San Francisco was just a perfect match for him. And he got, got there in 2009, left in 2015. And his manager is going to go to the Hall of Fame one day, Bruce Bochy. We covered a lot of ground, and, and I'm better for, for learning from him. That's for sure. Yeah, and you, you got to wonder. We didn't dig into it too much, but, you know, you got to wonder if, you know, Bruce Bochy is going into the Hall of Fame for sure. But, but, the, but the big question to me is a little bit why, right? And I think Jeremy is maybe the perfect answer for that, right? So I know Jeremy had personal things that happened in his life that helped him unlock you know, sort of what he could be as a big league pitcher. But you got to wonder if guys like Bochi, you know, teammates around him, whatever, you know, we hear about this a lot, right? Of like a, an athlete, doesn't matter the sport, an athlete who's sort of scuffling, you know, good enough to stay in the big leagues or whatever, but then they kind of find a home. And then what that home becomes, you know, they actually become essentially a star within that space. And, you know, find their why on the baseball field or football field or soccer pitch or whatever. And, you know, to me, like somebody like a Bochi, like maybe that's what makes him the Hall of Famer, right? Is that he figures out, and, 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 and Jeremy did touch on that, you know, is that he sort of figures out like each individual guy, you know, I've, this is what I've got to do to make, to maximize their potential. And, you know, to me, maybe that's what Jeremy found in Bochi and in, and in, you know, uh, San Francisco and the fan base, you know, all of those things, you know, they can come together and we've seen it happen so many times. And I, I'm just glad it happened for a guy who is just s- seemingly such a good dude, right? Like those are the guys that you, you hope that that really does happen for and that, that he didn't take every contract for granted. And then he went out and worked hard every day. And, you know, and even when he was down in the dumps about, about his baseball career, he still found a way to show up to the ballpark every day and, and, and find kind of whatever that next level was that made him love it again. Matt, really appreciate you, man. Jeremy, really appreciate you tuning in. Hope you guys enjoyed the podcast with uh, Jeremy Affelt, and we'll see you guys next time. This is the Victory Away from the Venue podcast. Thanks for tuning in.